But I'd like to invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll begin reading in verse 1 down to verse 8. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's Word. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this thing be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon his word. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth, that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, I want you to consider with me briefly the way in which various churches advertise their church to potential visitors. Oftentimes, you'll see churches advertise the fact that they have a very robust and vibrant children's ministry. Or perhaps they talk about their beautiful facility that you can come visit. Perhaps it's a sense of community that you can feel while at the congregation or relevant preaching that you could apply to your life. But I wonder how many churches, when they go and advertise themselves to potential visitors, if they would say something like, hey, check us out. We administer church discipline upon our members. I would assume not many, not even many OPC churches would have that front and center uh, in order to uh, uh, draw visitors, because in fact, you probably wouldn't get many people. Maybe some people with morbid curiosity would want to come check it out. And that's because I think, by and large, discipline is viewed by our culture as an entirely negative thing. It's messy. It's complicated. It takes a long time. And it's much easier just to ignore the problem and hope that it goes away. But as we see in our passage today, church discipline is absolutely necessary to maintain the peace and purity and unity of the church. We see that discipline is not only necessary, but as scripture also tells us, it is a sign of God's love for his people. As the author to the Hebrews reminds his readers, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Indeed, if a father refuses to discipline his child, it is not a loving father. 
Well, so as we look at this difficult, complicated, and yet necessary element in the life of the church, I think there's important things for us to understand with regard to church discipline from our passage today. You'll recall that the Apostle Paul is writing to this congregation, a congregation that he had planted uh, uh, years before. He's writing to them as a spiritual father. And he's rebuking his readers for their arrogance and their inflated sense of self-worth. By adopting the wisdom of the world, they had divided their church into various factions. And now we see that very same pride and arrogance, or literally them being puffed up, resulting in their complacency in the face of even gross and heinous sin. And so Paul begins our passage today by saying it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of such a kind that not even the pagans tolerate it. He's flabbergasted to hear of such a scandalous report. For indeed, a man is living with his stepmother. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul doesn't cite the Old Testament law, passages such as Leviticus 18 or Deuteronomy 23, to show that this is clearly forbidden. He doesn't even need to cite the Old Testament law to show that such an act should never take place. His point is that this is so bad that even the pagans frown upon such immoral behavior. We have evidence of Roman law that actually forbade such adulterous and incestuous unions, and punishment for such acts could be quite severe. It could result in being banished from the city, uh, losing your social status and all of your property. And so Paul's point to the Corinthians is that they are tolerating something that is so bad that even the pagan world clearly condemns such behavior. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this passage and I think about this, you know, I I try to recreate the scenario thinking of this guy who took his stepmom and now they're living together. There's a lot of questions that pop up in my mind. First question is, number one, is the father still alive? And, And what is he trying to do about it, if any? Clearly, this man is a member of the church, but what about the father? What about uh, the, the stepmom? There's a lot of questions that Paul just, for whatever reason, doesn't answer. And our curiosity uh, just has to go on. Because it's interesting that Paul, after mentioning this gross and heinous sin, doesn't dwell on it, but he immediately goes on to address his audience. And we see here that his primary concern isn't so much this man's sin. He's already delivered judgment on that. His primary concern is to address the congregation. You see, the sin that he's most concerned with is the sin of the congregation in tolerating such an individual amongst their ranks. We often think of sin as as, as individual acts, uh, sins of commission that we go and actively do, but we can also sin by failing to act. That's what we call a sin of omission, and that's clearly what's going on here in the church of Corinth as they are failing to administer godly discipline upon such a heinous sinner. And so we might ask, well, why? Why did they tolerate such a sinner in this congregation? Why did they allow this man to go without discipline? And what does their arrogance, as Paul says, they're they're being puffed up and they're boasting that he mentions in verse 6, what does that have to do with it? 
Some commentators suggest that there was a faction within the church at Corinth who claimed to be above the law of God. Their slogan is summarized in chapter 6, verse 12. If you just scan your eye over there, their slogan is this, all things are lawful for me. All things are lawful for, for, for me. You see, by misapplying the fact, the teaching that we have died to our flesh, the suggestion is that, is that they thought that whatever they did in the body didn't really matter because we're dead to the flesh. And so we could do really whatever we want because that's our old man and that's put to death and it really doesn't matter. And so anything done in the body is indifferent, including the most illicit sexual sins. This so-called special knowledge that they claim to possess, Paul warns them, ultimately puffs them up in chapter 8, and it was only used as a pretext for a license to sin. Well, there are certainly elements within the church of Corinth and certainly other parts of the, of the, of the book that lead us to believe that, that this was a real thing going on in the church at Corinth, as we'll see in chapter 6, as well as chapter 8. But Paul doesn't mention any of that here. And so ultimately, we're left to speculate if, if in fact, this false teaching or this false assumption or misunderstanding, distortion of the truth, was a contributing factor here. Another interesting suggestion as to why this man is uh, left without discipline and, not toler- and is tolerated is that perhaps this man was, was wealthy and had high social status and thus was getting special treatment. That's something that always is, is, is a constant temptation in the church is to show partiality to those who are wealthy as James warns us in James chapter 2, that you know, a rich man comes in and he's wearing fine jewelry and rings, and you say, oh, you sit here. You get special treatment. You see, we know that the majority of the church of Corinth were not rich. They were not powerful, as Paul tells them in chapter 1, verse 26. But ironically, they boasted as if they were, as Paul said back in chapter uh, 4, where he says, already you are full, already you are rich, you, you have reigned without us. You see, so you could see definitely uh, there's this tendency on the part of the Corinthians to take pride if, in fact, this man was a wealthy, influential person in society, that they would take pride in the fact that he was part of their congregation, and thus there would be some reluctance to discipline him, although he is committing a heinous sin. Well, regardless of the reasons why they were tolerating him, the fact of the matter is is that they were not doing anything, and they were boasting in their tolerance. Whereas the proper response of the Corinthians is found there in verse verse 2 when Paul says, ought you not rather to mourn? You see, when we are confronted with sin, when we find sin, serious sin within the church, the whole attitude of the congregation should be to mourn. Not just for the loss of a sinner, not just because one member has gone astray, but because when one member suffers, the whole body suffers. Because we are part of the body of Christ. And so this should have been the attitude of the Corinthians. Not boasting, not being puffed up in their pride, but mourning because the church has been afflicted with a serious sin. And so Paul insists 
that they discipline this man by excommunicating him from the church. Now, excommunication, just to be clear, is an official declaration, as we will see, an official declaration that a person is no longer part of the body of Christ. This is the most severe and extreme type of censure that the church can deliver by saying you are out of the kingdom of God. But this highlights the first, uh, uh, the, the most important reason for church discipline. The most important thing that we seek to accomplish when we do church discipline is this, to vindicate the name of Christ before a watching world. You see, the fact that the church of Corinth were tolerating a sinner who was committing an act that even the pagans frowned upon and condemned gave a black eye to the church. It gave reason for the Gentiles to blaspheme the name of God. You see, sadly, we as Christians are capable of committing even the most heinous sins. We're oftentimes no different from the world. And yet when the church tolerates that, it gives the notion that the, that the name of, it drags the name of Christ through the mud. And so that's why Paul will later on say, anyone who names, claims the name of being a brother, part of the body of Christ, needs to be removed if they are living in gross and heinous sin. So while the Corinthians were boasting in their tolerance, Paul has already pronounced judgment upon this individual as soon as he heard the report. That's what he says in verse 3. I've already rendered judgment. Now, it's important to note here that the Apostle Paul, in saying he's delivered judgment and then, and then instructs them to execute that judgment, it's important to note here that the Apostle Paul is bypassing the typical process that we as a church undergo when we do administer church discipline. And here I'm referring to the instructions that our Lord gives us in Matthew chapter 18, that if a brother sins against you, you go to him and you confront him with his sin. And if he doesn't listen, then you come with two or three witnesses. And if he still doesn't listen, you tell it to the church or its proper officers, and then a formal, what we call formal church discipline begins. So the Apostle Paul is bypassing that whole, that whole process, or uh, perhaps the process that we read of in Galatians 6.1, that if any of you is caught in sin, you who are spiritual, go restore such a one in a spirit of humility and gentleness. We're past that point now. You see, the reason, uh, the reason being is because this sin is so heinous, and it being a public sin, and presumably has gone on for a considerable amount of time, we are past that whole process of trying to restore this brother. The Apostle Paul, with his authority as an apostle, renders judgment and delivers the censure. And so Paul goes on to say, although absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. It's interesting, as we, you may recall from the end of chapter 4, that there were some in the church of Corinth who were boasting, who were puffed up, and arrogant because the Apostle Paul wasn't there. And they got word that, that rather than Paul paying them a personal visit, he sent them Timothy. And so, you know, when the cat's away, the mice will play. And so they were using Paul's absence to promote their own agenda, and they weren't fearing any consequences. Well, at the end of chapter 4, Paul warns those people, look, uh, don't, don't think that way because I am coming to you. And when I come to you, I'm going to find out what you're made out of. That's what Paul says at the end of chapter 4. But here, 
he's telling his readers, you don't even have to wait until I come to you. Why? Well, because in one sense, Paul says, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm not with you in body, but I am with you in spirit. Now, what does Paul mean when he says, I am with you in spirit? I don't think he means the same thing that we mean when we say that. Oftentimes when we say, well, I'm with you in spirit, it means, you know, I'd really like to be there, but I can't. And so my thoughts and concerns are with you. I don't think that's, I mean, that's true of the Apostle Paul. But I don't think that's what he means when he says, I'm with you in spirit. But rather, I think he says, I am with you through the power of the spirit. Here I think he's referring to not just his spirit, but the Holy Spirit who unites all of the saints together in one body and through whom Paul had the authority to make such a pronouncement in the first place. And so you may have caught it when I read the passage. Rather than saying, as if present, I said, as present. That's what the Greek says. There's no if there. That was inserted by your English translators. As present. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul is giving the church his spiritual authority to execute this censure. So so look how Paul explains this. He says, when you are assembled together, verse 4, and this is another important thing to note about church discipline, is that the church discipline is not uh, conducted by one man only, but rather church discipline is an act of the whole church. It is an act of the whole church. Although administered through its officers, through ministers and ruling elders, the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven have been given to the whole church. It's not given to one man who who holds the keys and then all of the power trickles down. That's what the Roman Catholic Church views. But our understanding is that the keys of the kingdom of heaven have been given to the whole church and it is administered through its proper officers. And so no one person has the authority to do church discipline on his own. Not even the Apostle Paul could, ex- could, could ex- excommunicate this sinner unilaterally. So he enlists the congregation. You need to do this as well, he says. He enlists the saints to deliver that censure. And that is, by the way, why we are Presbyterian. See, Presbyterianism, the heart and soul of Presbyterianism, is that no one person bears all of the authority. This isn't my church. It's the Lord's church. I don't have authority to unilaterally do anything. That's why we have elders who rule the church. So they are my bosses. I need to submit unto them, and we submit to one another as we seek to maintain the peace, purity, and unity of the church. And that's ultimately what our Lord requires. When we execute church discipline, he requires at least two people. Remember the promise he gives us in Matthew chapter 18? For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. We often use that verse when we gather in small groups, prayer groups, or Bible studies, and, you know, just to, uh, you know, pacify the, the the ego of the pastor. Well, you know, we're only, only two or three people are gathered together. Jesus is with us. Well, that's true. I mean, Jesus is with you when you're by yourself. But in the context of church discipline, which is the context of Matthew chapter 18, 
Jesus says, wherever two or three are gathered together in my name to execute church discipline, I am with them. In other words, with them, with my power. And so that's what it means for the congregation to gather together in the name of the Lord Jesus. That is, under his authority and his power based upon his promise that he gave, it, gave us in Matthew chapter 18. And so think of all of the people who are involved in executing church discipline here. You have the Apostle Paul who says, I am with you there. My spirit is present with his authority. You have the saints of Corinth gathered together, and you have the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Look there in verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus. So it's the saints at Corinth plus Paul plus Jesus through the Holy Spirit conducting church discipline. So what are they to do? And, and, oh, and, and so that is why, when we think about the severity of church discipline, that's why we can, we can take uh, to heart the promise that Jesus gave us in Matthew 16, when Jesus said to the apostles, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Here we see real ministerial authority taking place. It's not just take it with a grain of salt, this is what we think, but it is, this is real authority of the Lord being done through the administration of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And so what are they to do to this man? Well, Paul previously said he needs to be removed from among you. Later on, quoting from Deuteronomy, he says, purge this evil person from, from, your, from among you. But here he explains it in verse 5 to deliver this man to Satan. What on earth is he describing here, talking about delivering this man to Satan? Oftentimes commentators are puzzled, and they wonder what on earth Paul had in mind. Well, I think it's the, the explanation is quite simple. He's describing the process of excommunication and what that involves. You see, when a person is no longer part of the church, who is, who, when a person is officially pronounced to be outside of the kingdom of God, they are necessarily under the dominion of darkness. As Paul talks about in Colossians chapter 1. Elsewhere, Paul talks about delivering uh, these two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, over to Satan. And they're describing the process that they were excommunicated because of their false teaching. You see, when we are outside of the church, we are, we are necessarily under Satan's sway. We are in the domain of darkness. That's how important it is to belong to a local congregation of the church. So what is the goal? Why deliver this man over to Satan? Paul says, for the destruction of the flesh. You see, Satan's sole aim is to kill, to steal, and destroy And yet, nevertheless, Satan mysteriously is able to accomplish God's will. Luther said the devil is God's devil, and he can only do what God allows him to do. And although Satan has malicious motives, God uses Satan to accomplish his purposes. And so the idea is that this impenitent sinner will be kicked out of the church, left to his own devices, 
and Satan's sway with the hope that he will turn from his wicked ways and be restored. And that's another goal of church discipline. The first is to vindicate the name of Christ. The second is to reclaim the offending sinner. As Jesus says in Matthew 18, if he listens to you, you've regained a brother. And so that's the goal, is to uh, uh, awake this man from his complacent slumber, to realize the severity of his sin in the hopes that his flesh would be destroyed. Some commentators speculate that perhaps he'll get some sort of sickness or that Satan will be able to inflict an illness upon him and that will cause him to repent. Or perhaps some have suggested that this describes his physical death. But you see, when Paul uses the word flesh, I don't think he's referring to his body. It's not the same word that Paul uses, for example, in verse 3 when he says absent in body. This word flesh, I think, is not describing just his physical nature, but rather when he talks about the destruction of his flesh, he's talking about the destruction of his old man, his sin nature, which at this point he is enslaved to its passions. So with the hope that the old man would be destroyed so that his spirit may be saved. And here, Paul, I don't think it's just referring to that immaterial part of him, what we might call his soul, because we know from uh, very clearly in chapter 15 that final salvation involves salvation of both body and soul, both. And so what is Paul talking about with the salvation of his spirit? Well, here I think he's, he's referring to the new man who is renewed by the spirit. And so ultimately, the idea is that this man's sin nature would be done away with, and that he would be restored uh, restored into fellowship through the salvation of his new man. Now, does Paul know that this will happen for sure? Is he saying infallibly that, yes, excommunicate this guy and he's going to come back? Well, not necessarily. I think Paul, when he's talking about uh, delivering him over to Satan uh, for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved, he's talking about the, the idea, or this is what is to be sought out or desired. But it's important to note that even if a sinner is not restored, and oftentimes I think that's our mentalities. We think, well, why should we discipline uh, this individual? Because in all likelihood, they're not going to come back. They're not going to be restored. And so why do it in, in the first place? Well, because there are other important reasons for doing church discipline. I've already mentioned vindicating the name of Christ. And now Paul talks about the other important reason to do church discipline, that is to keep the church pure and undefiled. That's Paul's point in verse 6 when he says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Here he's using an analogy of everyday life. In the ancient world, undoubtedly, every single household would make bread on a daily basis. And for those of you who uh, know how to bake bread, or perhaps like me, love sourdough bread, you know the process. You take a little bit of the dough from the whole lump, and you save it for the next day. And that little bit of dough that has been saved is incorporated into the next day's lump of dough. And the bacteria that is contained in what they call the mother dough, that bacteria will grow and will cause the the dough to rise and incorporate all of the wonderful flavors 
that you get in sourdough bread and make it light and airy and fluffy. And left in the proper environment, that mother dough, that, that same strain of bacteria, that leavening agent, could continue forever. And there's there's you know, these sourdough companies that have mother dough that's over 100 years old. Well, see, that's, that's Paul's point here, is that just, it just takes a little bit of leaven. And left on its own, that leaven will incorporate throughout the entire lump. You see, leaven in Scripture, sometimes we think leaven is a symbol of sin. That's not necessarily the case. After all, our Lord compares the kingdom of God to leaven. But you see, when leaven is used in Scripture, it's used as a symbol of its pervasiveness, how pervasive it is, whether for good or for evil. If left on its own, it will spread everywhere. And so here Paul is using it in a negative sense. If you leave this guy in the church, he's going to affect the entire congregation. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so in verse 7, he says, cleanse out the old leaven. Now here he's, of course, referring to that Old Testament feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread that we read of in Exodus chapter 13. As the Israelites were preparing uh, for the Exodus, as they were about to make their way out of Egypt, the Lord told them to purge out any and all leaven that they had in the house and to eat unleavened bread for seven days. And they were to keep this feast on an annual basis. And this feast was to remind them, first of all, of the Lord's deliverance, redeeming them out of Egypt, but also their new identity as the people of God. They were taken from subjects of Pharaoh to being the people of the Lord God. And every time they ate unleavened bread, during that seven days, they were reminded of their new identity in him. And so in the same way that they purged out the leaven from their house, so the church at Corinth is to purge out this evil person from among them. But why? What is the motivation for them to purge out this person? Now, we might think that Paul would say, you need to purge out the leaven to make yourself unleavened. You need to purge out this evil person to make yourself holy. But that's not quite what he says. Look there in verse 7. Cleanse out the old lump, uh, sorry, the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. Do you notice what Paul says there? He doesn't say, make yourself unleavened. He says, you are unleavened, and so act like it. You see, the Apostle Paul always grounds his exhortations, his imperatives, in the indicative of what we are in Christ Jesus. He just wants us to live consistent, lives that are consistent with the fact that we are new creatures. He's already said this back in chapter 3, where he talks about God's temple being holy, and he says, you are that temple. Don't make, you can't make yourself that temple. You are that temple. Now act like it. You are unleavened. Well, how's that the case? Well, it's because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. You see, this is the other part of that feast of unleavened bread. At the end of the seven-day cycle of eating unleavened bread, they would sacrifice a, a, a lamb without blemish. And in the original Passover, they, they applied the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their house so that the destroyer would not touch the firstborn. 
They were passed over and spared from the destroyer. You see here, only the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, which Paul has been talking about for the last uh, four chapters, Christ crucified as the power of God and salvation, only Christ crucified, that lamb without blemish, can cleanse us from our sins and make us really holy. And so because of the fact that Christ has cleansed us from our sins, made us holy, made us unleavened in that sense, we are to live lives that are consistent with that fact, not only individually, but also corporately as a congregation. So Paul exhorts his audience, and it's interesting as we close in the last verse, it's interesting that even in the midst of this somber act of church discipline, even in the midst of the congregation mourning because of this sin, Paul tells them and encourages them to celebrate. Let's celebrate the festival. And so mourning in the midst of celebration, Paul calls them to celebrate. Why? Because of what Christ has done. We celebrate the fact that we are indeed cleansed sinners. And so, there is, so in, when we're conducting church discipline, there should be no notion of, of a self-righteousness, of a holier-than-thou attitude, that we expel a person because they're such a, a terrible person, but we're so wonderful in and of ourselves. No, even in the context of church discipline, we need to understand that it's only the blood of Christ that makes us clean. It's only because of the grace of God that we are not like the offending sinner. And so that's what we celebrate when we celebrate this feast. But unlike the Jews of old, who celebrated this feast only once a year, we celebrate this feast continually. And so what do we celebrate it with? And Paul builds on this metaphor of the, of, the, of the meal that we're having. What type of bread are we eating? I love bread, so I, I like these metaphors. What kind of bread are we eating here? Well, not the bread with old leaven. It's interesting that he uses two words to describe this old leaven, and they are translated malice and evil. It's interesting that Paul does not use the specific term for sexual immorality that he mentioned back in verse 1. You'd think that that would be on the forefront of his mind. Don't celebrate this feast with a sexually immoral person. Get that leaven out. No, rather he uses just two terms, two very general terms that were used in broader culture to describe all sorts of wickedness and vice. And so he broadens the, the idea. And here I think, here we see that leavening aspect, whereas you have the, the one leaven of this sexually immoral man, and yet the, the pervasive influence is that it's creating all sorts of wickedness and vice within the congregation. And so by purging that out, you purge not only the one offending sinner, the one type of sin, but you see church discipline has a purifying effect upon the whole congregation. And so let's get rid of any and all sin, Paul the same. And so what should we celebrate it with? Well, not with the sins of mal or the, the unleavened old leaven of malice and evil, but the new, the new unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now here he jumps over and uses two very specific virtues, not just general virtues of being good and holy, but no, two specific virtues which get to the heart of what the Corinthians need to do. Sincerity, 
Sincerity has to do with pure or unadulterated motives. It has the idea of being completely transparent. Its antonym is being duplicitous. And that's ultimately what the Corinthians were doing in tolerating this man. They weren't being sincere. So it likewise with truth. You see, truth has primary reference to God's word, but also about speaking and speaking that word and also living according to it. You see, by tolerating this sinful individual, the Corinthians were not living a life that was consistent with the fact that they really were unleavened. They had forgotten the truth. They were denying and ignoring of the truth of who they were in Christ Jesus. And so with both sincerity and truth, they had to purge out the, the wicked sinner and celebrate the feast because of who they are in Christ Jesus. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And that's the positive aspect of discipline. Discipline doesn't just have to be negative. It doesn't just have to be punishment, but it's the building up aspect. Speaking the truth in love, putting away falsehood, remembering who we are in Christ Jesus, and living a life that is consistent with that fact. Amen?